Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. I'm Helena Bonham Carter, and for BBC Radio 4, this is History's Secret Heroes, a new series of rarely heard tales from World War II. They had no idea that she was Britain's top female codebreaker. We'll hear of daring risk-takers. What she was offering to do was to ski in over the high Carpathian mountains. Of course it was dangerous, but uh, danger was his friend. Subscribe to History's Secret Heroes wherever you get your podcasts. Tortoise. Hello. I'm Giles Wittell. I'm Tortoise's deputy editor. It's the week ending Friday the 12th of January from our newsroom in London. Welcome to the news meeting. They were given criminal records vilified in their local communities and many spent time in jail. Now, finally, hundreds of innocent postmasters will be exonerated and receive compensation. Armed men storming a live TV broadcast in Ecuador. The studio crew taken hostage. The UK and the US have carried out military strikes against Houthi rebels in Yemen following sustained attacks on shipping in the Red Sea. President Biden has said he won't hesitate to order more strikes to protect ships in the Red Sea. The Houthis said the UK and the US would pay a heavy price. Those strikes by the US and the UK on Houthi rebel targets overnight in Yemen happened after we'd recorded our usual discussion about what should lead the news. So before we get into that, let's talk to Iona Craig, who's a journalist specialising in Yemen and the Arabian Peninsula. Iona, thank you so much for joining us. Can we start by having you remind us who the Houthis are and what do we know about their links to Iran? Um, Well, the Houthis really emerged out of a religious revivalist movement in northern Yemen in the late 1990s, a Zaydi Shia revivalist movement called the Believing Youth. It was a response in part to the Saudi-funded spread of Salafism in Yemen at the time. And one of the founders of that that, um, movement was Hussein al-Houthi, who was a a Yemeni parliamentarian, Uh, But in 2004, he was killed by Yemeni security forces, and that sparked the first of six wars between the Yemeni government and the Houthis. And that really um, only came to a close with the Arab Spring, really, in the protests against uh, Yemen's now former president, Ali Abdullah Saleh. Um, But despite Saleh having um, fought the Houthis in those six wars in the early 2000s, Once he was pushed out of power in the Arab Spring, um, he'd been in power in Yemen for over three decades. He then, in a classic sort of Saleh move, joined forces with the Houthis in 2014 
and with his loyalists in the army, helped them take power in the capital, Sanaa, in 2014. Those six wars exclude the one, the more recent one, uh, with Saudi. Yeah, exactly. So the Saudi Arabia didn't get involved until later in 2015, uh, when they formed a, a coalition along with the UAE to target the Houthis after the Houthis had taken the capital, Sanaa, in 2014, and then continued to take territory across Yemen and pushed the new president out of Yemen and forced him into exile in Saudi Arabia. And that was in March 2015 when the Saudis got involved. And they, um, in probably what might be familiar circumstances now, thought two weeks of bombing campaign would uh, push back the Houthis and push them out of Sana'a. Seven years later, they were still bombing the Houthis. And so now the Saudis are really trying to extract themselves from the conflict in Yemen. And in the meantime, the Houthis' relationship with Tehran, is is it analogous in any way to Hamas and Hezbollah's relationship with Tehran? Yeah, I mean, the Houthis wouldn't be able to do what they're doing today. They wouldn't have been able to carry out attacks in the Red Sea, hijack a vessel in the Red Sea, which they did in November, without the support and training from Iran. So that really started as political support way back in the early 2000s. But from the mid 20 sort of tens on onwards and certainly since the civil war in Yemen started in 2014 Iran has been crucial to providing training and weaponry the ballistic missiles we've seen them use um, the anti-ship uh, cruise missiles and the capabilities that they have now they they've really changed them Iran has from this kind of ragtag militia that they started as to this now sophisticated non-state actor that they are today. So yes, they are very much allied to and partners with Iran without being a proxy to Iran. So they do have their own agency, they make their decisions on their own. Uh, and this is part of the problem of where we're at today in the, in the Red Sea and with the escalation that we're now seeing is that they won't necessarily heed um, calls from Tehran if they want the Houthis to de-escalate. Uh, the Houthis tend to do what they want when they want. And just remind us, if you can, what happened overnight in, and what it was in response to in the sort of in the short term over the last few days. So really what's happened in the Red Sea with these attacks the Houthis have been carrying out on commercial shipping. The Houthis say it's in defence of Palestinians and it's a stance against Iran and they will continue to carry out attacks until there is a ceasefire in Gaza. Um, but those t attacks really escalated in the last week to 10 days and really culminated on Tuesday night of, uh, of this week with uh, a multi-faceted attack. So there was a swarm drones, um, up to 18 drones that the Houthis launched uh, at vessels in the Red Sea, in addition to anti-ship cruise missiles and ballistic missiles that were also targeting vessels. And I think that was really the kind of turning point for the US who'd already put out statements warning the Houthis that there would be consequences for attacks on shipping in the Red Sea. Uh, and then the Houthis really forced them into a corner. I think the Houthis are, essentially have been baiting America to carry out right. these kind of uh, attacks on them. Um, they've been wanting them to do it in many respects. But you're saying it would be wrong to assume that the Tuesday night drone swarm was on orders from Iran. This was a Houthi independent decision. Um, I mean, it's hard to know exactly, you know, obviously on the on the kind of command process and that, but it would be a Houthi decision certainly to to escalate in the Red Sea and to have carried out these attacks in the first place. They have been having 
having help from Iranian vessels in the Red Sea. So there's one particular vessel, which is actually a, a, a bulk carrier that's been sort of going up and down the shore of Yemen that appears to have been, that is Iranian flag, that appears to have been a sort of intelligence gathering, if you like, for the Houthis when vehicle um, vessels have been turning off their their automatic identification systems that the, this Iranian vessel can then tell them what boats are where in, in the Red Sea. Uh, so yes, Iran has certainly been helping them on the intelligence front, but um, uh, where it goes from here, I think particularly with um, the Houthis' response to the US strikes, I think will be very much down to the Houthis' decision. What has that response been so far? Uh, well, the Houthis have been very defiant. Their leaders, their military commanders, they've already come out and said, uh, we we will respond uh, in, in, in a similar way to, to what we've already seen in the sense that they will keep attacking vessels in the Red Sea. So, of course, the US was carrying out these attacks with a, these strikes with the hope that it would deter the Houthis. That doesn't look like it's going to be the case. And then, if anything, I think it will embolden them. So, yeah, the Houthis are extremely angry. Um, they are certainly willing and ready to uh, attack vessels still in the Red Sea. And we even saw during these strikes last night that I was talking to people in Hodeida on uh, the port on Yemen's western coast, that they were hearing missiles outbound towards the Red Sea, even in the early hours of this morning, whilst those strikes were ongoing. So, yes, I think um, the, the Houthis are, um, are pretty resilient. They have been bombed for seven years by the Saudi-led coalition I, I really don't think that a night uh, or a couple of hours of airstrikes by the US is going to stop them. Has the US been able to carry out any, I think they call it battle damage assessment, uh, to see if their strikes were successful in taking out targets from which these Houthi attacks have been launched? Um, not that I, not that we're aware of yet. They have said that they were targeting uh, ballistic missiles and launch bases and drone launch pads. Uh, the Houthis themselves, of course, you know, because of they've been under airstrikes for so long by the Saudi coalition, they're not going to be keeping their armory displayed um, out in the open. Uh, equally, they, they knew these attacks were coming. The Americans have been threatening it for some days, if not weeks. So they certainly had the opportunity to literally put put those kind of missiles in the ground. And there are extensive tunnel networks that mm. that were even pre-existed the Houthis in Yemen to protect uh, those kind of um, munitions. So, yes, there isn't any battle damage assessment, but it's clear that the attacks that have been carried out were targeting um, airports and which also double up as air force bases, if you like, in Sana'a and in Taiz and in Hodeida. Um, so that seems to be a, a pattern within the strikes that were being carried out, that they were taking out um, locations where the, the Houthis have air force bases. And what hope now of a negotiated peace in the fighting between Saudi and Yemen? Is that a totally separate issue or could last night derail that? I think the Saudis would be very concerned that it would derail that. Um, and I think they've been notably quiet in their response to what the US uh, has been doing. They were, in fact, trying to, through back channels, uh, to ask the US to show restraint on bombing the Houthis. I mean, that's slightly ironic that for many years, the US and the international community were trying to urge 
the Saudis to, to stop bombing Yemen. And now it is the Saudis that are trying to urge the US and others not to bomb the Houthis. Um, but yes, I think the Saudis will be very concerned. They're very keen to extract themselves from the conflict. A deal between the Houthis and the, and the Saudis looked imminent at the beginning of October. And then the Hamas attack happened on October 7th. And that kind of put everything on hold without actually derailing it. But the Houthis have come out, certainly before these airstrikes took place yesterday, and some of their negotiators were saying that this will not affect their negotiations with the Saudis. And the Saudis have very been very muted in the aftermath of these American strikes, uh, sort of saying, you know, they're, mon they're watching closely with concern what's happening. I, I think the, the political deal between the Saudis and the Houthis would only be really in jeopardy if the Saudis either started backing the US openly diplomatically with statements or worse still, obviously, you know, by getting involved in any airstrikes that are going on, which I, I really don't think the Saudis would be keen to do at this point. So at the moment, those talks are still in place without actually any momentum behind them to, to get to a deal right now because of everything that's going on. So they're not derailed, but they're on hold. Finally, are you surprised that the Gaza conflict has expanded in this way to the extent that they're linked um, to the south rather than, for example, uh, to the north uh, towards Lebanon? Uh, not really. I mean, the Houthis are the, the newest recruit to the so-called axis of resistance that's led by Iran. And, and it, of course, includes Hezbollah, Hamas and the militias they back in Iraq. But the Houthis have the most leverage, really, because um, geography meets politics and because of their their location of being right next to the Red Sea and having the ability to disrupt shipping and international shipping in the way that they have. It's given them far more power and control than anything that was probably is probably possible from, let's say, Hezbollah or even uh, the Iraqi militias that are able to attack uh, U.S. military bases in in Iraq. This is far more wide um, wide reaching and has far more impact potentially on the economies of, of particularly Europe uh, and to a lesser extent the U.S. So yes, they've got far um, more leverage in that respect than anybody else, and they're certainly using that. So I don't think it is a huge surprise. Um, I I think the Houthis have have long for many sort of decades now been attempting to and wanting to have access to the Red Sea. And now they've not just got the access, which they got through the civil war in Yemen, they've now got control of it. Iona Craig, thank you very much. My pleasure. Joining me to pitch the story they think should lead the news are Tortoise's news editor, Jess Winch. Hello. Hello. Climate editor, Jeevan Vastigar. Hi, Giles. And political editor, Kat Nealon. Hello. Right. You're each going to tell me what you think Tortoise should be covering, and then I'll decide which one should lead the news. Let's start with, long story short, in a single sentence, what do you want to talk about, Jess? Ecuador's president declaring war on drug gangs. Jeevan. Bill Ackman and the future of Harvard. Mm-hmm. Thank you. And Kat. Well, I seem to be the only one still doing long story short properly, but mine is the gloves are off. That's suitably mysterious. <laughs> I, you know, I don't know if there are hard and fast rules about long story short, but I appreciate the brevity. Excellent. <laughs> um, so, 
as you can see, we're not doing the post office story, which has been leading the news everywhere for days now. We did talk about it on Monday's episode, and a few of you have since been in touch. John writes in to say, As ever, I've been enjoying the news meeting, but I feel the discussion of the post office scandal missed something. Whenever I hear this issue discussed, all the focus is on the post office. They clearly have questions to answer, but they are not the only people to blame. Fujitsu seems to get away with very little opprobrium. As far as I can tell, they received millions of pounds of taxpayer money and delivered a software system that did not work. Um, Does he have a point, Jeevan, that uh, Fujitsu sort of got away with it so far? I think it's one of the kind of questions for the media about this kind of story in that it's so sprawling, it has so many heads. There's a political element to it. There's the part about the culture of the post office. There's the element about Fujitsu. It's quite hard to keep the spotlight on on all of it all at the same time. Um, I think it's certainly the case that there are many questions for for Fujitsu to answer. Um, One that particularly kind of sticks with me is the culture at their call centre, which seemed to be deeply problematic. Uh, Mm -hmm. And I'm interested in kind of how that developed, why that wasn't checked. Uh, Kat, on on Fujitsu, this isn't your specialist subject, don't worry. Um, (laughs) But you have mentioned from time to time that you feel certain people in UK politics uh, are in the spotlight or should be or will be. Uh, Or do you think this fellow's got... um, Do you think John has a point about Fujitsu? Yeah, and I think think the reason why um, certainly the initial focus has been on Paula Venels and um, various politicians is because they are names, they are individuals that could be identified. And when looking for someone to blame, and that is the the sort of phase of the story that we are now in, we're in the sort of scalp claiming phase, um, that is what people are seeking. So Fujitsu has slightly benefited from being a faceless corporation for the time being, but I don't think that it is going to get away with things. There is already the very strong suggestion that they will be uh, ordered to hand taxpayers' money back uh, on some of the government contracts that they have secured, or perhaps to cover up um, some of, the, uh, sorry, to cover the cost of uh, some of the compensation that's being paid back to uh, post uh, office sub postmasters, uh, with the threat that no future uh, government contracts will be won until that point. And I think there is a very strong case, and of course. Everyone in Westminster is deeply conscious of the fact that this is an election year and therefore having done the sort of circular firing squad where everyone points the finger of blame at um, internal internal to parliament and other politicians, they are sort of also fairly eager to get it pointed out of Westminster as soon as possible. And so I think that um, having had uh, Paula Venel's quote voluntarily hand back her Mm. CBE after a million people signed a petition demanding it um, I think there will be a a sort of strong uh, impetus towards getting some redress from Fujitsu. Here's another email this one's from Philip he says yes of course this story should be leading the news its significance is still being understated not overstated it is not a one-off he writes It is just the most extreme case that we know of of unlawful oppressive acts routinely carried out by executives and lawyers of top employers, especially in the public sector, especially in the public sector, interesting, when they're covering up wrongdoing. Please do not give up on investigating this. Our legal system is institutionally corrupt, end quote. If you want to get in touch, you can always email us at newsmeeting at tortoisemedia.com. Jess, 
let's uh, hear from you what on earth is happening in Ecuador. So I think what people may have seen and what captured attention was the sight of gunmen entering a broadcast studio this week on Tuesday and briefly seizing control of it as it was broadcasting live on air for about 15 minutes. But this was happening. This was That was probably the, the peak moment in several days of violence that started over the weekend when a gang leader was found to be missing and had escaped from prison. That led to riots spreading across other prisons and onto the streets. And on Tuesday... The president of Ecuador declared that the country was in a state of war. At least 11 people have died so far. And the, he's declared a two-month state of emergency that includes curfew overnight and thousands more soldiers and police out on the streets. And he has listed two dozen criminal gangs operating in Ecuador as terrorist groups, which effectively means it's, it's, it's war between the state and these criminal gangs. And I think... There's a few things that strike me as important to sort of understand the context of why this matters. And there's a couple of things as well as to why it matters to all of us beyond Ecuador. The pieces of context. In 2017, Ecuador was one of the least violent countries in Latin America. It was seen as the sort of island of calm when you compare it to its neighbours such as Colombia. And it had a homicide rate of around five per 100,000 people. In 2023, that's now estimated to have gone up to more than 40 per 100,000 people. And that puts it well above Mexico as one of the deadliest places in Latin America. So first of all, you need to understand that rise in violence has been building for years. This hasn't come out of nowhere. And has the, it come from Colombia? It has come from Colombia because a large part of what is driving this increase in violence is criminal gangs that are fighting for control of drug trafficking routes. So, for example, in 2016, when FARC was demobilized in Colombia, that's great news for Colombia, but it created a power vacuum in terms of who controls the drug trafficking routes, and Ecuadorian gangs stepped into the breach. Ecuador has good roads, it has a dollarized economy, it has pretty low visa requirements for foreigners, and that made it uh, an opportune location for gangs to Transize territory. Albanian gangs have apparently been making inroads there as well. Uh, some of the biggest. Is that because they control the other end of the routes in Europe? In Europe exactly. Right. Apparently, one of the busiest cocaine trafficking routes now is between port in Ecuador and Antwerp in Belgium. Um, but not Albania. But not Albania. <laughs> Um, but but Albanian gangs have been have have been right, right, right. coming onto the scene there. But essentially, it's just that backdrop of. Violence spreading down from Colombia into Ecuador, and then as a result, crime going up, um, assassinations going up, uh, unrest going up. Uh, and that's led to then this moment when the gang leader uh, escaped from prison over the weekend. He's called Adolfo Macias. Um, and you're now in this position where the, um, the president, who was only elected towards the end of last year on a promise to tackle the violence that has been happening. And is almost as young as the new Prime Minister of France, right? I mean, he's a kid. He's, he, <laughs> he's 36. Yeah, he's a kid. I think. Yeah. Is, that, is that a kid? Yeah. Okay. Um, but he is pretty young and he is now in a position where, according to one analyst, Ecuador is now seeing attacks using terrorist tactics that haven't been seen in Latin America since Pablo Escobar was carrying them out in Colombia. He has a lot of public support. I think at the moment, because of events this week, he has a lot of regional support and the US has expressed support for him to take action. He's already been threatening to follow tactics along the lines of what's been happening in El Salvador with these mass incarceration kind of style prisons, which got a lot of criticism from uh, human rights groups, quite rightly, but have also been successful in bringing down homicide rates, for example. So I think it's going to be 
really important what happens in the coming days and weeks in terms of whether he manages to get a handle on the violence and get the political credit of that or whether you just see the stakes get higher and higher and the violence get worse and worse. And we are all part of this because ultimately, as in so many other instances in, um, of drug-related violence, what's driving all of this is the world's insatiable appetite for cocaine, which no one's really, I think, talking about enough, and the fact that Ecuadorians, even before this week, were voting with their feet and were heading up to the border with the US. So right. it plays into the migration story as well. Yeah. So for all those reasons, I think it deserves more attention. Well, it, it has had some attention this week. I think it's one that people should pay attention to. Jeevan, Jess, Ecuador's a long way away. I don't think either of you are habitual cocaine consumers. Does this matter to you? Uh, I'm not a habitual cocaine consumer and also disquietingly too old to be prime minister of France now. Mm. Um, You're too I, old to be the youngest, but no, you could still shoot for it. Um, Go I can to keep the on US. Dreaming. You'd have a great shot. Um, You've got years. I think that what interests me about this story, I think there are two things that interest me beyond what's happening in Ecuador itself. I think uh, the two questions are kind of what it means for the rest of the world. Um, there, we know there's been an increase in drug-related violence in port cities in Europe, Rotterdam, Antwerp, uh, Amsterdam, as Jess said, the places that this drug is coming into, the, in, into Europe. Um, but the other side of it is the policy side and how you deal with it um, and the question of whether you put more people into prison, uh, your response is more dr- draconian. As I understand it from what's happening in Ecuador, prisons are basically kind of universities, bases from which criminals operate. Yeah, they're so, operating bases. So I- imprisoning more people is actually making the problem worse. Um I think it's, I'm not an expert on drug policy, but I think it's interesting that there's been a shift towards decriminalization of some drugs, um, increasing use of, of cannabis in, in, you know, in forms where people aren't being prosecuted for cannabis use, um, experimentation with magic mushrooms, and, but but still kind of re- relatively tough attitudes towards cocaine. And that, that might be the right thing to do. Um, but I'd be interested in knowing more about how, you know, why that shift is happening and how, how that's explained. Kat, I think I called you Jess just now. Apologies for that. That's fine. Um, what do you think of um, Jess's story? So um, on a personal level, uh, we are currently, my husband and I, working our way through the Narcos um, series. <laughs> I thought, uh, thought you were going to say through a nice baggie of... Uh, sorry. Of high-class cocaine. No, <laughs> ever the late adopter, we've we've um, picked up on uh, that, that, that brand-new series, Narcos. And, um, and I think what's really striking is kind of how long all of this has been going on for and the sort of uh, spread of it as Jess was saying from Colombia into other countries in Latin America and we all know that 2024 is going to be a very important year for elections we talk a lot about the sort of whether liberal democracy is under under threat and I think South America could be one of the areas where it is most under strain um, and perhaps where you know this the this system that we consider to be great and 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 imperfect but the sort of route to progress and prosperity for most people in the world whether we could see a significant kind of backsliding in south america as a result of 30 40 years of drug gangs right let's move on cat tell us more about your story there has been a lot of talk about how nasty uh, the election is going to be. Um, and that means we've probably got, let's say, 11 months of some deeply unpleasant attacks. And the first few weeks of this year, we have already had a taste of it. Um, and I think it's kind of interesting that 
you you are already getting a very clear sense that certain parts of the right-wing press are not going to play ball with Labour, despite what seems to be um, a fairly sticky poll lead. Um, so fully anticipated by Labour and I think a lot of commentators, um, Starmer's uh, track record as the Director of Public Prosecutions is um, sort of being gone through in in fine detail. And so some of the stories that have been coming out are the fact that he worked pro bono on death penalty cases, um, which was styled as he's trying to save uh, sort of awful people that tried to... uh, One of the cases was a man who had buried a, a young child alive. Um, there Where was, was this story? Was this the Daily Mail? or That was in The Sun. In The Sun. Then there was a story in The Mail on Sunday about how Starmer used the European Court of Human Rights to fight for a pet dog called Dino or Dino. Um, uh, not hasten to add Starmer's own pet dog, which I think would have been an interesting uh, story. That Starmer least... loves puppies is good for him or bad for him? I'm not sure. <laughs> well, either. Starmer loves puppies and hates the death penalty is a curious attack line, but it is the one they're going for. Um, the right-wing media, despite the polling, is still very much aligning itself with the Conservatives. But Tortoise's favourite and uh, often in-house sophologist Sir John Curtis has said just in the last few days that in his view um, the Labour lead is solid, will stick and will lead to a Conservative feat of historic proportions. That being so, do you think the sun at some point between now and the autumn is going to start changing its tune or is this the year that it gives up on being the somewhat won it? I would say if they were going to endorse Labour or even if they were just going to back off and accept that Labour was likely to win, but, you know, they couldn't quite bring themselves to endorse it, they would have they wouldn't be starting off 2024 with quite such aggression. Mm. Um, And uh, it surprises me because the sort of truism on Fleet Street is that you only ever start a campaign that you know you can win. Um, and this feels like a campaign that the Sun et al can't win. Um, I, I, I think that you know the polls are probably likely to narrow. The other issue that we've not talked about is um, the, the the sort of slightly unquantifiable uh, impact that reform will have. Um, they've said they're going to stand in every seat. They have done packs with the Tories in before and and called the dogs off. But I don't, uh, from what I can tell. Um, there's no love lost, particularly particularly between Nigel Farage and Rishi Sunak. So a, a kind of wholesale pact between the parties seems unlikely. What I have been told is that Nigel Farage may be looking to stand candidates in seats that he considers to be held by true Brexiteers. Mm. So if if you're a, if you're a sort of honest believer, then um, you you may be safe from a, a reform candidate. Um, which would explain perhaps why they're not standing someone in Wellingborough, um, which uh, was Peter Bone's constituency, and um, uh, there is a, a, a by-election now uh, being held with his girlfriend standing as the Conservative candidate. So um, reform, I think, will do some damage, and perhaps even if the polls start to come down for Labour, 
where reform stands will still kind of ensure that Labour is able to have a significant majority at the end of it. I just want to ask Jess, because she's our news editor. This is ugly. It's going to be ugly. It's compelling. Uh, but is it a, is a grab bag of right-wing reactions to Starmer or attack lines, is that a story in your view at this point? I think what I'm interested in on this is the impact that attack ads might have and how the parties are planning to deploy them across different platforms. I think we're going to see, as Kat said, we've seen some being used in newspapers. I don't know how influential newspapers are going to end up being in this year's election, whether you'll get a lot more out of social media platforms like Mm. TikTok, Facebook, Instagram, and the different messaging that you'll see across those for the different audiences. So I think a piece looking actually on how effective attack ads have been, what influence they have on voter intention and how each party's planning to use them. I presume, Kat, it's too soon to say? Well, attack ads um, are generally held to um, work, but they also have the consequence of um, driving down voting. Right. It it, it sort of ends up with people thinking, well, I don't like you and I don't like you, so I'm not going to vote for either. Um, And I suspect that this election will have a very low turnout in general anyway, because although there is broad consensus that people are are sort of done with the Tories, um, there's still a very, very significant proportion of don't knows and um, and. Labour is yet to articulate a reason why those don't knows should come over to them. So the attack ads may work in so far as diminishing voter turnout even further. But I do think that that is also part of the Labour calculation. They are comfortable with people not coming out to vote as long as they were the people that were going to vote Conservative. Thank you, Kat. Uh, Let's take a moment and then we will hear more about Jeevan's story. I'm Afwa Hirsch. I'm Peter Frankopan. And in our podcast, Legacy, we explore the lives of some of the biggest characters in history. This season, we're exploring the life of Cleopatra. An iconic life full of romances, sieges and tragedy. But who was the real Cleopatra? It feels like her story's been told by others with their own agenda for centuries. But her legacy is enduring. And so we're going to dive into how her story has evolved all the way up to today. I am so excited to talk about Cleopatra, Peter. She Love Cleopatra. She is an icon. She's the most famous woman in antiquity. It's got to be up there with the most famous woman of all time. But I think there's a huge gap between how familiar people are with the idea of her compared to what they actually know about her life and character. So for Pyramids, Cleopatra and Cleopatra's Nose. Follow Legacy Now wherever you get your podcasts. Or you can binge entire seasons early and ad-free on Wondery+. Plus. Jeevan, tell us a little bit more about Bill Ackman. He's a billionaire investor whose focus has been uh, on what's called activist campaigns involving businesses. An activist campaign is basically where you go in saying, this business has to change. I'm going to make a song and dance about it. I'm going to buy a stake in the business. um, And I'm going to campaign for the CEO to go, for the chairman to go, for the board to be revamped, for the direction of the company to change. Um, He's done this in various different ways, often successfully, sometimes not successfully with companies. And now he's done it with Harvard. So, um, and the story at Harvard is that essentially the the woman who was... um, 
Harvard's leader, Claudine Gay, the president of Harvard, has been forced to resign uh, following Bill Ackman's campaigning. So the reason why I'm pitching this is that I think um, it's not just a story about the most famous university in the English-speaking world, or, or one of the three most famous universities in the English-speaking world. It's a story. It's a broader story about the backlash against diversity, because one of the things that um, Ackman has campaigned on is an idea that um, diversity poly- policies suppress debate uh, and lead to a sort of artificial, lazy consensus. Um, one of the things that he said in, in these very long essays that he's posted on, on Twitter is that certain speech is no longer permitted, um, and that's that's been a part of his campaigning, um, and. I think there's um, going to be a broader social corporate impact of this. People will see the departure of Claudine Gay at Harvard. People will see Ackman's campaigning, and he's campaigning now for new leadership at Harvard, uh, for backing certain choices to be the new leaders, uh, to be the new members of the board. And people will see this and pull back on diversity policies, will worry about um, all of the sort of the changes that have uh, come back to attempt to deal with racism and sexism in American and in British public life. And I think there's going to be a sort of broader backlash as a, as a result of this. That, that's why I think it's interesting. Do we know, incidentally, what his next move in relation to Harvard is? Because in a sense, he's won this one. He'd probably go back to making some money for a bit, right? Uh, no, he's going he's gonna to carry on campaigning. So he's backing particular... Um, he's he's backing a, a revamp of the board. He's backing particular members for the board of Harvard. So he's he's continuing this campaign to to remake the university. And he's gone beyond Harvard now, hasn't he? Because now it's gone to Business Insider and to areas of the media that he also has. Well, there is a sort of bizarre sideshow involving Business Insider. So I'll just I'll just explain that the 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 thing that ultimately toppled Claudine Gay at Harvard were allegations of of plagiarism, which I think haven't been proven, but have been raised as sort of question about her work. Um, and then there was a story in Business Insider which looked at um, some of Bill, Bill Ackman's wife's work and said that that was plagiarised. And he's now he's now pursuing Business Insider over their journalistic practices. Um, so so he, yeah, that's, he also said he was going to review the entire body of work of everyone else at MIT, which is where his wife had got her PhD. So yes, so, so one of the dangers leaning in one of the dangers of activist campaigns is that they very quickly kind of spin out of control and become kind of all consuming. Um, so I think the kind of the kind of question here is whether he can whether he can win at Harvard, whether he gets his candidate in, whether he he can remake the place. I mean the other thing that tends to happen is that activist investors get early wins, they get um board members losing their seats, and then there's a big pushback from within the company and, and they, they ultimately they end up losing. So you know, this this war is not over. He's won the first round. One of the very many opinion pieces that the New York Times has been running about this, almost as if the scandal is unfolding in its own corridors, uh, made a very uh, cogent, compelling argument against the view that diversity and merit don't coexist. In other words, this writer made the point that, to the contrary, uh, if you're serious about merit, you have to be serious about diversity as well. That said, does Atman have a point that over the long run, the last two, three decades, a illiberal, hard-left sensibility has taken hold of academic discourse in elite American universities to the detriment of overall standards, quality of research, so I think there are there are kind of a number of things to unpack here, and I'll just just sort of pull out one 
sort of point first, which I think that one of the sort of triggers for this was concern about anti-Semitism. And I think there's there's a sort of interesting kind of story to be unfolded there, because I think, you know, traditionally, there have been restrictions on Jewish students at Harvard, Jews have been the victims of discrimination at Ivy League universities. There is now, it appears, a sensibility on parts of the left that sees Jews as oppressors and or, or Jewish students feel themselves cast as the oppressors in this situation. So that's, that's been one of the triggers for, for Bill Ackman's campaigning. We, we should mention the scene in a congressional hearing that started this all off, uh, at which Claudine Gay and the presidents of two other leading universities failed to answer yes to a, what was presented as a simple question, would uh, incitement to genocide of the Jews violate your codes of con- your campus codes of conduct and all three of them were unable to say yes this was a disastrously wooden performance and yes. i think sowed the seeds for her downfall yeah. um so i think i mean i should so so coming back to your your question um giles i mean i i think my sort of baseline on this is that i think that ackman is is a sort of force for good in general terms that he's posing a challenge that he's kind of creating conflict that he's picking it at a scab in the way that activist investors do but if you say that um you know, diversity policies have led to a sort of lazy consensus at Harvard. I mean, this whole scene that we've been talking about for the last few minutes suggests that that's not the case, right? They're, they're fighting away like rats in a sack. You know, mm. there's, there's sort of vigorous debate going on. And I think it's also worth looking at who the targets of this action are. So if you go back to last summer, there are eight Ivy League schools. Six of them, six of them were headed by women. Um, uh, two female heads of Ivy League schools, Gay um, and Liz McGill at Penn, have now gone. So it is concerning that the, the the targets of this action are women. Um, uh, so, I, I mean, you know, I, I really don't think that America and American elite education is a place where a lazy consensus has taken hold. Um, but I, I'm very glad to see this, this fight going on. I think it's, I think it's a useful and, and hopefully, I think, ultimately productive thing. I think, and I think it's interesting journalistically. Jess, just looking at it as a story, um, is it a current story or is it last week's story? I think it's I think it's a current story. I think it's a story that, as Jeevan said, there's a lot to unpack and you can still unravel um, a lot of questions that haven't really been answered. Kat? So I thought I I think the story kind of really should be focused more around the the sort of origin the origin of the issue, which is around the the anti-Semitism question as as previously raised. Um, it feels to me like the plagiarism stuff is the way that uh, she was got, but not necessarily the sort of starting point. Stephen oh, is nodding the, furiously. There's an element of the story, isn't there, that's about the connection between heart and head. So you can see the sort of the sort of loyally robotic performance um, that Gay gave at Congress, and then you can see the sort of emotive showmanship that Bill Ackman has kind of brought to this campaign. Okay, thanks all. Those are the stories. Now we've got to figure out which one leads the news. This is the part where I ask which one all three of you would choose, but you cannot pick your own story. Who should we start with? Let's start with Kat. You cannot pick Kia. I'm going to go with South America because um, I think uh, it is it is important. We, we often sort of don't always pay attention to countries that uh, we don't take our lead from. Um, and we don't necessarily take our lead from Latin America, but as discussed, they will be having several elections on that continent this year. And this is an attack on 
uh, free speech on journalists, which is an integral part of democracy. And therefore, I think it's important. Jess, which one would you choose? I'm going to go with Bill Ackman and Harvard. I think even though a lot of the news headlines were generated last week, I think there's still a lot to get into there. And I think The Sun and Kier is not quite a story yet. Okay, Jeevan? Um, So I read and listen to everything that Kat writes, but for me it's the Ecuador story (laughs) that that is more compelling. Okay. Thank you very much. Uh, Now, here's what I think. I think we do have... uh, I was... Shivers down my backbone when you said 11 months of this cat um i hope it's not that much but we do have months during which these attacks will uh sharpen possibly find their target we will see whether whether they impact this incredibly stubborn 20 point lead but i don't think uh, we're at that point yet i'm not going to have uh sir keir and the right wing press attacks on him at nascent as they are leading this time Uh, nor am I going to have Bill Ackman and Harvard leading this time. Uh, Important, though, that is, and I think we can all agree that there's some incredibly complex strands to this story that haven't haven't played out yet. But in a sense, the drama was a couple of weeks ago now, uh, and we are just in the period of aftershocks, if you think of it as, as an earthquake. And it is beyond me as a bearer of little brain to figure out what where the story goes with any precision at this point. I am therefore going to lead, as Jeevan and Kat decided to, with Ecuador for three reasons. One is it was incredibly dramatic, what we saw on television. Two is that it's baffling, unless you take the headline view that Ecuador is the new Colombia, which is a starting point, but not a finishing point. But thirdly, precisely because I really hate the idea that we don't cover stuff about countries that are a long way away because they don't actually materially impact our lives. It may be that this story won't materially impact our lives unless we are recreational drug users on a very large scale and it increases the street price of our preferred poison. Uh, That is not the case with any of us here. Uh, But I think, nonetheless, a really important story about the robustness of democracy, about the fragility of democracy and the very, very different ways that it comes under threat and responds to threats all over the world. And we're going to see a lot more of that. But boy, oh boy, this is a story. And it was uh, yesterday's story, but still very much rumbling on. So that leads the news. Jess, Jeevan and Kat, thank you very much. On Monday, we've got a special treat for you. That's, that's you and everyone listening. Former Tortoise editor and now managing editor of Good Housekeeping, Liz Mosley, the one and only, will be here in the studio. Please join her then. Have a very good weekend. Tortoise. I'm Afwa Hirsch. I'm Peter Frankopan. And in our podcast, Legacy, we explore the lives of some of the biggest characters in history. This season, we're exploring the life of Cleopatra. An iconic life full of romances, sieges and tragedy. But who was the real Cleopatra? It feels like her story's been told by others with their own agenda for centuries. But her legacy is enduring, and so we're going to dive into how her story has evolved all the way up to today. I am so excited to talk about Cleopatra, Peter. Love she Cleopatra. is an icon. 
She's the most famous woman in antiquity. It's got to be up there with the most famous woman of all time. But I think there's a huge gap between how familiar people are with the idea of her compared to what they actually know about her life and character. So for Pyramids, Cleopatra and Cleopatra's Nose. Follow Legacy Now wherever you get your podcasts. Or you can binge entire seasons early and ad-free on Wondery Plus.